Let me try that again. Is that better? Good morning. All right. Good to see everyone out this morning. Glad to, uh, glad to have everyone here worshiping the Lord together. I uh, want to make a quick announcement. Young people, I want to make sure that you all know this. Uh, kids, everyone, if you're uh, under the age of a teenager and down, uh, this coming March the 4th, what's going to happen? Anybody know? Nerf War. There you go. I want to make sure everybody knows about the Nerf War. Saturday, March the 4th at 2 o'clock. Who, who all in this room? I'm curious. Adults, you too. Don't you lie. How many people in this room have a Nerf gun? Look at there. Okay, I expect to see you there. I expect to see you there Saturday, all right? Uh, March the 4th. Now, March the 24th, uh, the, the very next thing that we've got coming up on our schedules, we're going to have a family game night up here at the MPB building. So if you like to play card games or board games or anything along those lines, uh, make sure you write that date down as well. Um, this morning, I've got something I want to share with you. I found this last week. We've been talking about uh, the foundation of our faith. We've been talking about uh, the Bible, and, and, and can we trust the Bible? And I found this, uh, this picture that I want to show you. We know the Bible's pretty old, right? Uh, teenagers, young people, I, I want you guys to listen very carefully, too, on this one. How old, approximately, is the, is the New Testament? Not the whole Bible, because it's been written over a period of many years. But the New Testament, approximately how old is it? 2000. Roughly 2,000 years, okay? Well, I want to show you what is the earliest fragment of the Bible that to this date so far, this is the earliest fragment of the New Testament that has been found. I want you to look at this up here. Now, this is, a, this is called fragment P52. This is the earliest known fragment that we have of the New Testament. It is from the Gospel of John, my favorite gospel, and it only, uh, it's only about four inches by two inches. Very, very tiny little fragment about this big that was found. Now, you can imagine being almost 2,000 years old, that's pretty brittle, right? If you just touch it and, you know, if you move it with your fingers a little bit too much, it's going to crumble, it's going to fall apart. But on that parchment, on the very front, is John 18, 31 through 33. And on the back of it is John 18, 37 through 38. If you're curious as to what, uh, what that text is about, that's the text where Pilate questions Jesus before the crucifixion. But it's known as fragment P52, um, it's dated, now watch this. This is the part that, that blows my mind when I think about it. It's dated to 125 A.D. 125 A.D. Now, if you don't follow the dates and how they work, we, send, we tend to say A.D. is what? After the death, Anno Domini, right? At the year of our Lord. And so it's 125 years after Jesus. Jesus died at what time? 33 A.D., give or take a little bit, right? Most people believe that this, this, uh, this gospel was written probably sometime toward the end of the first century. So roughly 90 to 100 A.D., sometime right around the time that John writes his gospel. It could be a little bit earlier than that. But what am I trying to say? Boil all of that down, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to tell you that that little fragment, that piece of the New Testament, that little tiny fraction of the gospel of John is only about 25 years removed from the original writing. Now, did you get what I just said? Remember a couple weeks ago, I told you that the original writings of the New Testament, what are they called? Those are the autographs, right? The actual writings of the New Testament. That piece of paper is a copy only 25 years removed from the original writing of John himself. Is that not amazing? 
Amen. Every single year, people are finding newer and newer and older and older discoveries in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series that we're calling the foundation of our faith. And over the last couple of Sundays, we've been asking the question, is the Bible inspired? Is it really the Word of God? Can this book that, that we have, can it be trusted? And over the last couple of Sundays, we started looking at you know, why asking these questions is so important. If you remember, uh, we said that the reason why this topic is so important is because more and more people in, in our day, in our time, uh, Christians even, are starting to see the Bible as being less and less authoritative for their lives. In other words, let me put it in colloquial speech. People don't really think you've got to read the Bible anymore. People don't think that you really need to pattern your life or arrange your life toward the Scriptures anymore. Even religious leaders, even Christian leaders in the church are seeing the Bible as being less and less needed for our day and time today. Last Sunday we saw that what the Bible claims. And, and remember we said that if the Bible doesn't claim to be inspired, then it doesn't even matter that we're having this conversation. But what was it that we saw last Sunday? Time and time again, from the beginning of the Bible, we went through the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. Does the Bible claim to have inspiration? Does it claim to be the, the authoritative Word of God, yes or no? Yes, it does. Okay, so what I want us to do then is to begin where we left off last Sunday. Last Sunday I said this, if the Bible claims to be the inspired Word of God, then you and I have a question that must settle in our souls. What do we believe that inspiration? Do we believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God. Well, it would be great if there were some evidences. And it turns out there are many evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong before we get into some of the stuff that we're going to talk about this morning because I don't want you to think that I'm giving you evidences for the Bible's inspiration in order for you to believe. Okay? I don't believe that one bit. I don't look at those evidences and use those evidences as the foundation for my faith. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ rose on the third day, that he died for my sins, and that he lives forevermore. Amen? Now, because I have that faith, and because I know the Bible is true, that allows me to then be able to open up my eyes and to see evidence for the inspiration of the Bible that otherwise I might not be able to see. So I just want to say that at the very beginning. I'm going to offer these evidences to you, not only to help you if you've got questions about the inspiration of the Bible, but let me tell you why I'm really doing this. Again, a couple weeks ago, somebody said, why are you doing this? You're preaching to the choir. Listen, I get that, but there's a whole lot of people not in the choir in your families and friends. Amen? How many times have you heard in your lifetime somebody say, well, I don't really read the Bible? Or I don't think that I really should read the Bible because why? It's, it's an old book been around a long time, right? It's almost 2,000 years old. Can't trust it really. Don't really know if, if, if what I read in, in the pages of the Bible is what they actually wrote 2,000 years ago. And besides that, I don't even trust the church anyway. Sometimes you see this brought into it, like that guy we saw in the video a week or so ago. He said, well, I don't know if it was just a bunch of men they decided to get together one day and make a bunch of rules so they could control people. So have you all heard that once or twice in your life, at least once? Okay, a couple of you have. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you some evidences to help you along the lines with those questions. Because one of the jobs that I have as a preacher, one of the jobs that Luke has, all the elders have, is to equip you 
to give you tools to put in your toolbox so that the next time you're sitting around having a conversation or you're at 4th of July with your family and you're all just kicking back and drinking a Coke and watching the fireworks and you're all of a sudden that Bible conversation comes up and they say, you know, I just don't know if I really trust the Bible. I'm giving you tools in your toolbox this morning so you can have that conversation, okay? You can trust your Bible, and I'm going to show you why. This morning, we're going to start a two-part series this Sunday, next Sunday, and looking at the internal and the external evidences for inspiration of the Bible. And bear in mind as we get into these, we're only going to be scratching the surface. If you've ever seen that old illustration of an iceberg and you see it above the water and you see about that much, and then below the surface of the water you see the rest of that thing, well, if you've ever done any uh, studies in apologetics, David, I know you know this, we're only scratching the surface. I mean, literally, you could do an entire series on just the internal evidences themselves. Next Sunday, I get to put on my Indiana Jones hat. Literally, I'm going to put on my Indiana Jones hat because we're going to look at some of the external evidences of the Bible. And one of the greatest set of external evidences we have is archaeology. Just, I, I was going to be an archaeologist before I became a preacher, so I literally have the hat, and I will wear it next Sunday. So, All right. But there's a lot of evidence, so let's go ahead and get into it. Number one this morning, I want you to write this down in your notes. This is the one I'm going to spend most of the time with because this is the one that's going to knock your socks off. But number one, the first set of internal evidence for the inspiration of the Bible that I want to talk about this morning is number one, the Bible is textually credible it is textually credible now what do i mean by this what i mean is the text that you have today translated from the original copies almost two thousand years ago do not significantly deviate from the original manuscripts that were written by the original authors almost two thousand years ago does that make sense let me say it again a different way, a little bit more succinctly. To say that the Bible is textually credible means that what you have in your Bible today does not significantly, that's the key word, I'm going to talk about that in a moment, it does not significantly deviate from the original writings that were written 2,000 years ago. Okay? So, how do we determine whether or not a set of manuscripts is accurate? Well, you have to have something to compare them to, don't you? You go back and you look at history, you have to have what's called documentary evidence. And the more documents of a certain type of writing that we have, the more that we can compare all the different writings to see whether or not they line up. You say, Tim, I'm not following you. Let me give an example. Look at this up here. Now, I, I, Terry, I can hear you now. It's too small. I get it. I, I, look, I tried everything I could to blow this thing up. It's a lot of information. But, but let me just kind of show you what's going on here. These are original writers, authors of writings from antiquity. Plato, Homer, Her Herodotus, Theoclides, uh, 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 Aristotle, Sophocles, uh, Julius Caesar, Tacitus, Pliny the Elder. These are just a lot of historian or, or historical writers. How many of you ever heard of Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey? I'm sure you probably read that in high school. Now, watch this. I shouldn't have even put this slide up here because I'm looking at it and I can't even read it, Terry. So anyway, just trust me, here's what it says, okay? You've heard of Plato before, right? The Greek philosopher Plato, all right? We've all heard of Plato. Well, 
How many uh, copies of his writings do you think we have? Um, you said one. That's a little low. It's like Price is Right. If you say one, you're going to catch all, right? Okay. Uh, no, we have a couple hundred of his writings, about 210 to about 240 ancient manuscripts of Plato. And we can take those ancient Greek manuscripts and we can read them all. And we can note the differences and see whether or not we think that's an accurate copy or that's an accurate copy. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody deny the existence of Plato today? Nobody does. He's in all the history books, isn't he? Plato. Here's another one. Aristotle. Who's heard of Aristotle? Turns out there's actually less copies of Aristotle than they are of Plato. How many copies of Aristotle do we have? We have 49 copies. That's it. 49 copies of all of Aristotle's writings. Now let me ask you a question. Does anybody doubt the existence of Aristotle in this room? One of you. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Nobody denies the existence of Aristotle. Uh, Homer's the Iliad, the Odyssey. I read that in high school. Uh, several of you have. It's, it's a great work. Um, turns out there's quite a few of those. We have 1,800 ancient copies of Homer's The Iliad. Does anybody in this room doubt that Homer wrote The Iliad? No, you don't. Now, I roll, please, show you something that I think is going to be fascinating. What about the Bible? What about the Bible? What about the Old Testament? Let's start there for just a moment. How many Old Testament manuscripts, and I'm just going to throw it out there, and I'm kind of happy you can't read it because you can't cheat, <laughs> right? How many Old Testament manuscripts do you think we have in existence that we can pull out from history and compare? Somebody, just name a number. Over five, very good. Over five. 700? 1,000? 10,000? How about this? 42 thousand manuscripts almost like it was an important document that people wanted to preserve <laughs> 42,000 manuscripts now there used to be critics long long time ago because before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found let me tell you the oldest scripts we had for the old this this blew my mind when I first learned this before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found the oldest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament dated back to 900 A.D. 900 A.D. Now, understand what that's saying. That's saying that the Bible that we had was translated from manuscripts that dated back to the Middle East. Now, that still left you a 900-year gap from the time of the Middle Ages back to the time they were originally written. So in the 1800s, Liberal scholars, they had a field day with this. They said, oh, the Bible has just changed and it, it's, it's, it doesn't even look nothing like used to uh it, you know man has crept in and, and made all these changes throughout all these years and we've got this 900 year gap that's what they used to say we've got this 900 year gap that we can't even tell you what the bible says so therefore you probably should doubt it right well that all changed in 1947 1947 there was a little bedouin boy by the name of muhammad who was out tending his sheep almost sounds like the beginning of a bible story doesn't it he was out tending his sheep. There was a sheep that went astray. And all of a sudden, he goes down to these caves, and this is a common place for these little sheep to kind of bob in and out of these holes. And so he's just kind of trying to find him. He takes a rock, and he throws it into one of the holes, and all of a sudden, he hears what the sound of pottery shattering. 
Little boy climbs up into the hole, and it turns out that there are hundreds of clay jars that are filled to the brim with scrolls. And what they found is that literally every single book of the Old Testament, including a few other ones, like the book of Enoch and some other ones, but every single book of the Old Testament, they had a copy of either in fragments or complete whole scrolls. I remember in 1999, I had a chance to go and see the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. And there's an entire scroll. When you go into the scroll room, it has the book of Isaiah literally all the way around the room. One big long scroll. Book of Isaiah, word for word. Pretty amazing, right? Well, hold on a second. Because now the liberal scholars are like, oh, I can't wait. And I'm, just, I'm being facetious here, but I mean, I can almost see the, the, the sleeves being rolled up. I can't wait to show them now because we're going to take the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to translate them. We're going to find all the problems and, and issues and things that have been changed. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, it is going to put a death nail into the coffin of faith. Well, here's the problem. What shocked the academic world at that time is that when they compared the ancient Dead Sea texts to the text that we already had, which is the text that you have in your Bibles today, when they compared that from the translations that were made from texts that were 900 years old, now all the way back a 1,000 years earlier than that. Listen, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying very carefully. The oldest text that we had was 900 A.D., almost a 1,000 years after Jesus, right? When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found copies of the Bible that were now a thousand years earlier than that. Okay? What did they find? You want to know? When they compared the text to the ancient text, 95% was word for word. Word for word. Now, I see a couple of eyebrows being furrowed Wait a minute, Tim, are you saying the Bible is 5% incorrect? No, I'm not saying that at all. You see, you have to allow for some things to change in the course of 2,000 years. How many people read the King James Bible? No, you don't. I love you, but you don't. You read a modernized version of the original 1611. If I pulled out a 1611 King James Bible, you know what you're reading? You're not reading the New Testament. You're reading the New Testament. I'm, I'm being facetious, but almost every the F is an S, and the, and the, it almost sounds like you have a lisp when you're reading the, the King James Bible, right? It's not the same. In other words, there have been updates to it, right? Lettering has changed. Spelling has changed. A little bit here and there has changed over the years to help you understand it. There are words that were used in 1611 that we don't use today. There are words that was used in 1611 that do not mean the same thing today, and you don't want to use those words because it's going to cause confusion. Let me tell you something. 95% of the Hebrew Bible was copied word for word. The other 5% are minor difficulties, minor changes, mostly spelling differences. Um, in fact, if you look at it, there's only one variation out of every 1,580 words. What does that tell you about the meaning of the text? The meaning, the message, is absolutely perfect. Absolutely the way that God wrote it down, the understanding, the meaning that he gave those original authors, you have that preserved 100% in your Old Testament. Amen. I thought that would get at least two amens. 
about one and a half there, but okay. Now, by the way, just as a, as a quick side note, I want to show you this really quick. Um, earlier, I showed you the oldest fragment that we have of the New Testament. Well, how would you like to know the oldest fragment that we have from the Old Testament? This is a scroll, a set of scrolls that was found called the Hinnom Scrolls. And it's two silver amulets. They were worn around the neck, right? And they, these were discovered since the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were discovered, I believe it was about the 1950s, somewhere around there. Actually, no, 79 and 80. I remember because it was around the time I was born. So right around 79 and 80, about 44, 45 years ago, these, these two scrolls were found. Let me tell you what they say. These are silver scrolls. When the archaeologists found them, they unrolled them. And on those two scrolls was Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. You've probably heard this before. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh cause his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. You want to know how old that is? This is dated to the 7th century B.C. 600 or so B.C. Right around the time that a guy by the name of Jonah was doing his ministry was about the time that somebody sat down and wrote those scriptures on those amulets and put them around their neck. Pretty fascinating, if you ask me. Okay, let's talk about the text of the New Testament for a little bit with this slide that nobody can read. I've got to do a better job on that next time. What about the New Testament? Well, if you think 42,000 manuscripts is really good for the Old Testament, the New Testament is obviously a lot shorter. How many manuscripts do we have of the New Testament that we can look back and compare and look at the different copies? Well, it turns out that when you consider all the languages, Latin and Greek, there are about 24,000 manuscripts from the New Testament. About 24,000. I'm not going to go in and do all the details again, but let me tell you the variation. When they compare the manuscripts that we have dating all the way back to the 3rd century, 2nd century, to the ones that we have today, scholars have found that there is one variation out of every 1,000 words. In other words, it's just like the Old Testament. 95% of the text is exactly the way it was written by the, by the first century authors. There have been changes due to mainly spelling differences and whatnot. But the message, the gospel, is 100% preserved. Now, does that not, is that not amazing? You say, well, how in the world is that even possible? How in the world is that even possible? Because humans make mistakes. Yes, they do. But we have a sovereign God who has been overseeing this process for the last 2,000 years. Let me tell you something. If we have a God that can't, can't keep the integrity of his word, we don't have a God worth worshiping. Amen? I mean, he has all power. He has the ability to inspire these men to write down these things, and he's got the ability to make sure that it's preserved all the way up until the day you sit down with your Bible and you open it. But the thing that I want to be able to say to you this morning is next time you get in that conversation that you're having with somebody who's a skeptic, which uh, Jude 22 is a real short verse, right, Craig? But what did it say? Be kind to those who doubt. Be kind to those who doubt. So the next person you have somebody talks to you and they show doubt to the Word of God, very kindly show them the truth that the message is exactly the message that God wants them to hear. And he's preserved it over the past 2,000 years. I love this. Renowned archaeologist Sir William Ramsey 
once said this. He said, the Bible writers are of the first rank and should be a place among the greatest historians that have ever lived. The fact is, you may not like what the Bible has to say, but the proof is, it is exactly what the author said. It is exactly what the authors intended. It is exactly what God wanted communicated to his people. The Bible is, and I'm going to say this, this is, this is absolutely true. I showed you all those manuscripts from all those previous writers, right? This is a true statement. I want you to remember this statement. The Bible is the most documented set of manuscripts in the history of human civilization. The Bible is the most documented set of manuscripts in the history of human civilization. What does that tell you about this book? Again, I can't prove to you everything in the Bible is true. That's not what I'm trying to do. Last week, I was trying to prove, does the Bible claim inspiration? I showed you it did. This week, I'm trying to show you, are there evidences for inspiration? Yes, there is. And one of the greatest evidences that there are is that this text has not changed in 2,000 years. Has not changed in 2,000 years. It is faithfully witnessing what was originally written. And you say, how is that possible? Because again, humans are, 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 they make mistakes. It's possible because those humans who copied it believed it to be the word of God. They held on to these words carefully as if they were the very words of God himself because they, they are. Okay, that's the first proof, internal proof, of, an evidence, of the evidences for inspiration, okay? Here's the second one. I'm going to wrap it up on this second point here, and we're going to get into some external evidences next Sunday. The second one is the Bible is one unified book. And to me, this is what makes the second internal evidence of the Bible's inspiration so strong. It's the fact that it really is a unified book. It stood the test of time. I want to show you an image. You guys have probably all seen this one. Look at this. Anybody ever seen this? Somebody with a computer decided to take all 63,779 cross-references. You know what a cross-reference is, right? That's those little footnotes at the bottom of your Bible or in the margin of the Bible. When you're reading a verse, sometimes there's another verse somewhere else that sheds more light, or maybe it's quoted from the Old Testament. That's what it looks like visually, your Bible. That is an integrated whole message when you think about it. To me, the Bible is the most remarkable book that has ever existed on the face of the planet. It is a book that is actually a library. It is a volume of volumes. There are 66 books in the Old Testament. How many is in the New? 27. There was written by over 40 different authors. Do you realize that? That book that you have in your lap was written by over 40 different authors. These were people that came from all walks of life. Um, they were, this, this Bible was written by kings, by servants, by philosophers, by fishermen, by doctors, by military leaders, herdsmen, and even the first century equivalent of an IRS agent. They wrote from different places. They wrote from deserts. They wrote from dungeons. They wrote from caves. They wrote from palaces. They wrote from islands and battlefields. They wrote from a hillside and even a prison cell. They wrote on different continents. This Bible was pulled together not only from Europe, not only from Asia, but also from Africa. In fact, there are 16 different countries 
represented by the authors of this book in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Their writings cover a lot of subjects, by the way, hundreds of subjects, and yet when you read the Bible, it's almost as if you're reading a single author, isn't it? Folks, that cannot be explained by coincidence. That cannot be explained by collusion. If I were to sit here in, in just a moment uh, and um, Lauren, I would look at you and I'd say, Lauren, let's pick a controversial topic today. I don't know, uh, the war in Ukraine, right? And I said, let's write a one-page paper about what's going on in the, in the war in Ukraine. And everybody in this whole room wrote a one-page paper on the war in Ukraine. Do you think everybody in this room is going to agree? You guys really need to drink your coffee. Let me answer that question. The answer is no. Nobody, not three or four people is going to agree in this room about the war in Ukraine. Well, guess what? The same is true with the Bible. You think about all the, the, the touchy subjects we disagree on today. My goodness, do you think the Bible could be written today? In today's climate? No, if it's not inspired. Does that make sense? Because we can't agree on anything today in churches. I'm speaking generally speaking, right? Okay. So to me, the only reasonable answer to the amazing unity that we see in this, in this perfectly set, arranged set of manuscripts is that there is one master architect that designed the entire whole book, and he is still in charge today. I recently read an article that was put out by the Bible Project. I want to read this to you. I highly recommend the Bible Project, by the way. I know, Luke, you probably agree with me on that. You've shown a lot on the app. The Bible Project puts out a lot of great visual media to help you understand the Bible. I highly, highly, highly recommend them if you ever want to just have something visual to help you with. But um, I came across this article because the Bible Project did a video series on the inspiration of the Bible. And they were talking about internal evidences, just like you and I are talking about this morning. And this little article that they wrote is called, What Connects the Collection? What Connects the Collection? Here's what the article states. I love this. It says, Genesis opens with the phrase, In the beginning. In the garden, humanity faces a huge decision. Will they listen to God's instruction or will they choose to live by their own wisdom? Later, the first verse of John's gospel also opens with the words, in the beginning. And because of these same words, the readers are brought back to this Eden narrative in their mind. Is John 1.1 going to start a new creation story, a repeated idea? What is John doing here? This repetition of words and phrases and ideas is part of the Bible's connective genius. As the gospel story unfolds through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, readers once again find themselves in a garden with a new human facing a huge decision. Talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, right? At the end, talking about Jesus. Will this person, Jesus, listen to God's instructions? Or will he, like Adam, choose his own path? The Genesis story took a tragic turn. But its connected gospel story ends with a different turn. Hope, not my will, says this new human, but your will be done. A stark contrast to the first human that we saw in the book of Genesis. Genesis and the gospel of Mark contain two radically different styles of writing separated by thousands of years, two completely different people, two completely different languages. But they're telling the same story. Repeated symbols and words and settings and plots 
and characters. These are the things that the biblical authors use to connect the entire collection. By learning how to see these patterns, the disjointed feeling that often accompanies Bible reading begins to fade and the story starts to click into place. See, this story that you and I are talking about, this is the story that I'm, that I'm trying to get us to understand, that there is a biblical worldview. Let me get it over to this side here. There's a biblical worldview that will not make sense unless you are fully saturated in the Word of God. This is the story that we find ourselves in. This is the story that God's people for the last several thousand years have found themselves in. But, but I feel like I'm falling short with trying to, 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 to get my point across here. So last week, my, my main point was this. Jerry, you'll remember this. My main point was this, is that we've got to be in the Word of God. We've got to be in the Word of God daily. But I, I, I told you that last week, but this week I want to show you. I want to show you why this is important. Let me see here. I borrowed my wife's coffee thermos. Thank you, honey. Now, up here, you'll notice that I've got two cups, okay? Two cups. And I want you to just imagine that this hot water that I'm about to pour into this cup, I want you to imagine that this cup and this hot water is your life, okay? The, the heat of the water represents the vitality of your life. You're alive. And so we pour that water into the cup, and that just represents you, okay? Right there. I'm making a mess. I apologize. Now, another cup up here, and you'll notice that this cup has something in it. What is this? Tea. Anybody like tea? Anybody like tea with no sugar? I'll give it to you when we're done with this, right? All right. Now, I want you to watch this. Now, I want you to, rep I want you to think about this tea bag I want you to represent, this tea represents the Word of God, okay? And when your life washes over the Word, and the Word washes over you, you're going to notice that a change begins to take place inside that cup. If you notice, the color's starting to change a little bit. It don't look the same anymore. Before, it was clear, but now visually, something is starting to happen. It doesn't look like the same cup of water that I had anymore, does it? Something has changed about the smell. It doesn't smell the same anymore. And just in case you want this, I'm not going to take a sip. But anyway, if I were to take a sip, I would imagine that that tastes a little bit different too, doesn't it? Do you guys understand what I'm trying to illustrate here? The more time you spend in God's Word, the more you are not going to be the same as you used to be. Is there any way that you can look at this now and say, that's a cup of water? What is this? No, that's water. I put water. You saw me put water in it. Is that water or tea? It's tea. See, from now on, you cannot change the identity of what has happened here, right? Because that's no longer a cup of water. That's now tea. Whether you like it or not, it's changed. Let me tell you something. When you spend time in God's Word every single day, your life is going to change. And, and, and people are going to look at you over time, and they're going to realize something is different. 
That person does not look like they used to. That person does not say the things that they used to. That person has a different kind of demeanor than they used to. That person is no longer just a cup of water. That person has been transformed. Now it's a cup of tea. You can never change that fact again. It's gone from one thing to something else. Well, let me tell you something. When you become a Christian, when you wear the name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you've died to everything that you once were, and now you have become something else. But the problem is, is that we think that as Christians that we'll get there by just coming to church on Sunday. And it's not going to happen. Just as I've been sitting here talking this entire time, what's happening to this water? Hope you like it strong. But the longer I let that sit there, the more aroma, I can smell it just up here. The aroma gets stronger. It gets darker. Do you think that might be the same thing that happens in your life if you allow your life to be saturated with the Word of God? See, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then Colossians 3.16 is going to be true for you. You're going to let the Word of Christ richly dwell inside of you, and it will change you from the inside out. So my only takeaway that I'm going to give you this week if you read your Bible every day, guess what? That illustration was for you. If you don't remember when the last time it was you picked up your Bible, that illustration is for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you so much for all that you do in our lives. I thank you that you have given us this word, that you have preserved it literally word for word all the way up until this time. And God, when we read it, we know that we're not just reading words in a book, that we're reading stories about you and your interaction with people and how you have moved and shaped history for thousands of years to bring about the goal that you have, which is to bring about your Son so that those who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, help us to find our place in that story today. Help us to form a biblical worldview about these things. Help us to realize that we are so needed today that the fields are white, but the workers are few. Let us be counted worthy to be your workers, Lord, to not only live for Christ today, but also to show others how to find you as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you want to respond to the invitation, we have a, a song that's been picked out. You can come forward. We can pray together. The water's ready.